I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of the Future of Storytelling. I'd like to welcome you back to the FOSS podcast. My guest today is serial entrepreneur and visionary virtual world guru, Philip Rosedale. Philip is the founder of Linden Labs, the company that in 2003 launched Second Life, the original and incredibly successful internet scale virtual world. In Second Life, users create their own avatars and are able to interact with each other and explore the world. There's a thriving economy where people create, build, shop, and trade services and virtual property using Linden dollars, their own virtual token, which is exchangeable for real-world currency. At its high point in 2013, Second Life had a million regular users. Today, it still has hundreds of thousands of monthly users who are generating tens of millions of dollars of economic activity in the world. Cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens, and the metaverse can all be said to have their origins in Second Life. I had the pleasure of getting to know Philip when he came to speak at the FOSS Summit back in 2016. At that time, he was running High Fidelity, a company he co-founded in 2013 with the vision to build the first virtual reality-enabled virtual world. Unfortunately, the growth of VR headset adoption that he and many others predicted has yet to materialize. So today, High Fidelity has pivoted to become a provider of high-quality, immersive 3D audio. With Facebook renaming itself Meta, and so much of the tech industry obsessed with the metaverse, I thought it would be a good time to hear from the one person who's pursued his vision of virtual world since the 1990s and who's actually already built a version of it. I'm proud to have with me on the podcast today, the metaverse OG, Philip Rosedale. Philip Rosedale, it's such an honor to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, it's really nice to see you. It's been a little while since, um, since we were together in real life at the Future of Storytelling uh, conference. What was that, five years ago or something? Of course, it seems like 50 years, right? Yeah, amazing to think, yeah, that it was, it was New York some years ago. Well, listen, I want to start by asking you about your initial vision for um, for Second Life. And when you, when you were just getting going, like imagine we're 20 years ago and you're coming to see me to pitch it. Like I, I'm maybe an investor. What would you have said to me? What, what was the, the pitch that you gave back then? Well, it was something like a place, you know, online where people could go and communicate with each other and do and make and build whatever they wanted to. And you're right, it was an unusual idea. And it was even more unusual then. although there were certainly visionaries that had, you know, thought about things like virtual reality, which itself had kind of started with Jaron Lanier, you know, say 10 years earlier. So it wasn't entirely crazy that, you know, you could want to build an online world of some kind. But the idea of an online world that was open and was designed to be more constructive, you know, more of a kind of a canvas or a Lego kit was a very unusual idea at the time. And one that, you know, I had a particular passion for, but that honestly, many of the people who I presented it to at that time uh, didn't understand. 
what was your vision of what would happen there and why people would want to, to come to it? I think I was struck by the thought that people would be artistic and creative, you know, that they might like reimagine or rebuild things from the real world or, you know, kind of dream, you know, uh, architecturally, at least. I, I imagine that people would build buildings because that would be so interesting, you know, kind of explorations of how to use space. I also imagine that some people might try to make a living there or do something there, you know, design-wise or participation-wise that they could make money from, which is why from almost the very beginning with Second Life, we had an economy and we had a, a currency, you know, almost a cryptocurrency that, that you could use to buy and sell things with. Okay, so, so then let's jump forward to when Second Life is sort of at its peak, which is what, maybe 2013, somewhere around there. And describe what that world is like, like sort of in case anyone that's been living under a rock and did it <laughs> hasn't been to Second Life. Yeah, well, we, we launched Second Life in its kind of alpha form in 2002, and then we launched the, the thing, we, you know, kind of officially opened Second Life in 2003, and then it became very famous in 2006, you know, and it was a very sudden thing. You know, it, it went from being an unusual thing that, you know, everybody was scratching their heads about to being this thing that everybody in the world knew about. And in 2006, there were 500 articles a day that were being written about Second Life. Wow. And then it leveled off at a, the population size that it still has today. So it, it, it leveled off at about a million people uh, using it uh, monthly and, you know, probably a you know, half of that or something really using it a lot. But yeah, what it looks like today, it's a space about the size of Los Angeles. It's, Second Life is a rolling terrain that, you know, you can build on and live in. And that terrain, all, t all told, uh, many parts of it which are connected to themselves, uh, is about the size of Los Angeles. And the economy of it, uh, the, the total amount of goods that people are buying and selling, so things like clothing, furniture, cars, houses, all, all, all virtual, of course, totals up to more than a half a billion dollars a year in uh, these transactions, which, which on average are, you know, a couple of dollars a piece. So, you know, Second Life has been a study of a lot of the things that we are now, 2021, post-COVID or, you know, in COVID, uh, talking about in much greater detail. Second Life has been a kind of a time machine for looking at some of those things for a while. Yeah, no question. I mean, this is the original metaverse, right? And also the original cryptocurrency. And and you had a early version of NFTs in in that people could create digital objects and and sell them. And and so let me ask, what is at the heart of the economy of Second Life? Like, why why is there that much money changing hands and what is it that people are, are buying and selling? Well, I mean, the first fundamental reason was that it was a live editing environment. You know, a lot of the technical work that was difficult and that I was somewhat interested in being a technical, you know, networking and simulation computing uh, person, my background, the, the thing that was hard was that we built something where you could start from these little Lego building blocks that we called primitives and you could twist them and paint them and put pictures on them and glue them together, you know, in any way you cared to. And that enabled people to be creative. So the general idea there is that if you give people a rich enough medium in which they can actively and in real time, you know, make things, you're inevitably going to have an economy on that. So I think the reason that the economy came into existence was simply because we gave people the ability to do things like make a pair of glasses that they could attach to their avatar. And of course, 
you know, once you start that ball rolling, somebody else wants to build a slightly cooler looking pair of glasses. And there you have it. You know, you wait a couple of years and you've got a pretty big economy. That's amazing. So I'm curious to dig a little deeper into why you think people want to spend time in virtual worlds and what the benefits to them are. You want to have a different identity. I mean, you want to change uh, how you present yourself to other people. And of course, there can be a lot of different reasons for that. But if you want to be somebody else, maybe you're a celebrity and you want to be a little anonymous or you want to create a, you know, a pseudonym that uh, nobody knows you by. Maybe you want to make money. Uh, you know, whether it's building and selling digital assets, as we see with NFTs today, or some sort of an experience economy, you know, where you're a performer, you know, getting paid for your time, uh, you know, in a virtual world. Another one is just kind of bringing us all together. And I think this is something where, you know, Facebook, sadly, has provided a kind of a counterexample, you know, some online systems have not brought us together the way that we optimistically thought uh, they would. But, but I do think that there is an opportunity for virtual worlds, at particularly if they're designed the right way, to bring people together so that I might go in there and hang out with people from halfway around the world that I might otherwise have had distrust of and, you know, get to like them better. But personally, for me, that's been one of the things that I want to continue to work on and that I think is one of the big opportunities for virtual worlds. But we got to do it right. I mean, you and I are both of, um, of an old enough age to have lived through sort of the initial utopian idea of the internet and, and the belief that it was going to create greater connectivity, empathy. I would go so far as to say like harmony that could come about because of the ability to, to know people from around the world better. And, and yet where we are at the moment seems to be uh, almost more the opposite, right? It's certainly some of the largest social media platforms seem to be accelerating our differences, not our commonalities. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, would, would you agree that, that these are still ultimately tools and it's really about how people choose to use them? Is there, is, there isn't a good or bad baked into the internet or into virtual worlds or into NFTs. It's really just what we do with it all. I do. I, I think it is how we use these tools. I would also distinguish between tools that we use for communication with each other and then tools that we use for like broadcasting information. And so I think one of the things that's kind of weird about all this is that we've got the tool that is broadcasting information to people. And then there's the tool that is enabling communication and connection between people. And, the, you know, the tool sets are pretty different there. And it, the, the internet is both of them together. And, and I think sometimes we can dangerously overlap them, you know, like broadcasting and making new friends shouldn't go together, you know, or something like that. You know, we have, we have to be thoughtful about, you know, the risks and how we're using all this stuff. I wonder, <laughs> obviously, we suffer now from information overload and from echo chambers, right, where we, we are only hearing what we want to hear. Do you still believe that having infinite information is the right way to go? Or is it better that there be some organizing, filtering system so that we have some shared facts, some shared information. I mean, I think that's one of the problems is if there's too much information, there, there's, everybody has facts to support their various ideas. And as you say, I, I think that we, I didn't think enough about, and I don't think, I don't think many other people did. It was a hard problem 
about what being deluged with way too much information, what would happen, you know, like the idea that negative news, you know, in a, in a, in a sea of information, negative news travels faster, right? Or we didn't think about that, or at least I didn't think about that back then, but I think it is true. And so, you know, that's an example of too much information can be bad. And I, I think, as you said, the, the, the highlight, <laughs> I think, for me, of the internet, what we've learned so far is, hey, too much information can be problematic for human beings. You know, we only have a limited ability to take in information. You know, I think about things like the Dunbar number, you know, the famous, you know, Robin Dunbar, you know, science, scientist's observation that we can know 150 people really well. You know, we can't, as much as we might like to, we can't know 1,500 people very well because our brains aren't big enough. We, we get to know about 150. And so, the question with the internet is the internet lets you switch, I guess, which 150 you pick, but it doesn't let you go over 150. And so I think that, you know, is an example of the challenge we face. We can, we can choose a new family, but we can't make that family enormously larger. Or if we do, we do it at the risk of the quality of the connections, which is why we, which leads to all of the sense of loneliness and isolation and mental depression and other things I'm curious if you think that commerce, I mean, there seems to me there's a few things that people might point to that made uh, Second Life very successful. One, certainly commerce. I mean, the, the scale of the amount of money happening there is, is really impressive, and, and it's a good reason why people wouldn't give up on it, right? They're, they're making money there. Another one, sex. You know, there, there's a sort of a nat natural need <laughs> or, or interest. Right. Intimacy. Yeah, intimacy, but often new technologies are uh, adopted first and made popular because of that urge of people. Yeah. Addressing those two, are, the, are those sort of fundamental, do you think, for success of, of virtual worlds or, or metaverse? Well, I do think that authenticity, you know, allowing us to communicate with each other in an authentic way and to be intimate, you know, to be, to be close, is a requirement of a medium to, to be something that's really useful for us as humans. And you're, as you say, you know, sex, you know, sexuality and, you know, deep intimate relationships are inevitably a part of that. You know, they're where, you know, new communication between people may ultimately lead. And I, and I think that if you, if you block that from a system, then yeah, you walk back its value for people at large. So yeah, it, it feels like, New communication systems are invariably experimented with, you know, for example, uh, with sex. And I think that's okay. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, as we look at all these proposals about what is the metaverse and, you know, what happens next if we, if we do become more social online, yeah, the, the systems have to support, you know, a full range of human interaction. And if they don't, well, if they don't, you know, they'll be siloed. And that gets back to what you said about echo chambers, you know, that there's this danger that we don't want to, we don't silo our human experience. You know, New York doesn't separate different behaviors into different areas. And there's a good reason for that. I'm also sort of curious about the role of business in virtual realities. I know, for example, Microsoft is thinking about the metaverse in, in regards to it providing places for people to meet for professional purposes. Is this also sort of an essential piece, do you think, of the growth of, of virtual worlds or metaverses? Yeah, I mean, certainly we had always hoped. And, you know, Second Life didn't become used for business meetings, but it did become used and continues to be used a lot for uh, academic experiences. So it's like partway there. But I think, as you say, the metaverse potential, you know, the potential for getting people 
face-to-face online definitely includes learning and, and business, you know, business interactions, business meetings, business teams working together. I think that's a key opportunity. That said, it's a hard problem because most people are still not ready to be a 3D avatar. Uh, they still want to use video um, to communicate, especially when they're meeting somebody for the first time, because video, especially when you meet somebody for the first time, is giving you important information that you need to kind of establish trust, you know, get a feel for the person. So after Second Life or, or a certain point, you left and you started High Fidelity. In fact, I think we met sort of originally when you were working on that and the focus there seemed to be a virtual world, but now in, in virtual reality, right? You could have multiplayer or multi-person VR experiences. How did you feel that ended up working? Well, yeah, as you said, High Fidelity was a huge uh, bet on the VR head-mounted display, the, you know, best, uh, best seen today by the Oculus Quest, you know, is, is probably the best example of that. We jumped into trying to build kind of a whole new second life, a whole new virtual world designed entirely for the head-mounted display. And we worked on that for six years. And in about 2019, we realized as a company that although VR was starting to happen, the use of it for social engagement, for business meetings, for things like that was not going to happen within the next five years. And I stand by that. I stand by that number, even though we've, we've seen exciting demonstrations of, you know, new Facebook products and, you know, people have been playing with all kinds of stuff. There's been a lot of excitement. I still believe that um, the use of VR headsets as a means of, you know, going into virtual worlds, we still have a few years to go. They're, they're, they're too heavy. They're uncomfortable. You can't type. They're, uh, they're very stress inducing. Uh, they can be very divisive in terms of who is willing to wear them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting perspective. At Future of Storytelling, we tend to look for the people who are doing cutting edge, innovative storytelling and using tech in new ways. And so you're literally the first person I think we've had on who has not been, who, who had some experience with VR and has not been somebody who's like, it's here, it works, it's great, you know, who has not been an evangelist for it. And I guess you, you're saying you just think it's, it's a little further off in terms of the technological innovation. It's too heavy. It, it blocks everything out. I know you mentioned when we spoke the other day that it only sort of works for certain types of people. Explain what you meant by that. The practical problems with VR headsets are kind of easy to list. Like you said, it's they're too heavy on your nose. <laughs> they're uh, you can't type. Now these are things that can get practically fixed. The the other big one, especially for business, is typing. You can't type to communicate while you're wearing a VR headset. There's lots of good work going on to fix this, but as a person with an engineering background and a tremendous passion for this stuff, and being one of its biggest advocates in the, in, a, in a large larger sense. I think these are still problems that are pretty hard. You, you mentioned, yeah, that the divisiveness between people, that, that's the one that I think is both a subtle but really important observation that is also very timely in terms of what we as a society are talking about right now. And that is, are you comfortable blindfolding yourself in a room where there may be other people? Are you comfortable doing that? And I think the answer varies person to person. If you're a big, tall, white guy 
uh, you're going to be pretty comfortable putting a blindfold on and walking around like an idiot, you know, potentially tripping over your coffee table, right? But if you're not a big, tall, white guy, you know, your sensitivity to that risk and that vulnerability is a lot higher. So I think there's a really serious gender gap and just general kind of demographic, psychographic division that happens with who's using these devices. And if we're expecting to have social environments like live music experiences, for example, that are we're going to in VR headsets, we need to get those headsets to be completely equal opportunity in terms of who wants to put them on. I'm curious about your take on the metaverse frenzy that's happening right now. <laughs> it seems like Every company wants to read, not just Microsoft and, and Facebook, but everybody seems to want to position themselves as a metaverse company. Uh, yeah. Is that wise? Are we still too far away technologically from that really being viable? Second part of this question, which is probably a longer one, is since you've been doing this longer than anybody, what kind of lessons or, or advice would you have to share. Yeah, I mean, what a great conversation, right? We could talk about it all day. Well, the first thing was I'd say that when you say metaverse, I think people are talking about two different things, just two. One is the idea of a three-dimensional world, like what a video game looks like, 3D, the idea of going from 2D to 3D. The other thing is there are other people there and I'm communicating with them, right? I'm not alone in this space. So this, this idea of the metaverse really has two big components. And I think that when we talk about this transformation, we get excited about it. We're sort of mixing and matching that. And some people are kind of farther over on one side or the other. I'm more on the side that it's about communication. And then the reason that we're all talking about it right now is COVID. We all suddenly got the idea in our heads. And I think for a lot of us, it's a frustrating one, right? That maybe we're going to have to start doing a lot of things that we historically did face-to-face -face or in a physical location. We might have to start doing them online. And I think a lot of big companies are sort of circling in the sky, hoping that they can get a piece of that. You know, if we're all, if we're all going to have to go to, you know, entertainment experiences or hang out in bars or, or go to shows or something like that uh, online, hey, who, who's going to get a piece of that money? So it's important that you brought up COVID and it makes me think of Jane McGonigal's book, right? Reality is Broken. And her thesis, which was that the explosion of hours that humans were putting into gaming was a response to how their real lives were not as rewarding, as uh, they were not as fulfilling as, as the experiences they could have in the gaming world. And I wonder if you think that there's a direct relationship between time spent in virtual worlds and the quality of life available in the real world. The idea that the size of the virtual world population is proportional to the crappiness of the human experience outside the virtual world is a depressing and I think somewhat true thing. And, and you're right, yeah, COVID is kind of the big punch right now. But, you know, we've got other things like political unrest and wealth inequality, I think, is probably, you know, along with climate change, is the... You know, climate change and wealth inequality, I think, are the two, you know, things that we as a human species need to deal with right now. We can use technology to fix the world that we really do live in. I mean, I think that we can, you know, we can maybe we could use maybe we can use things like cryptocurrency. I say that with a big start, maybe because it's not going that way right now. But maybe we could use cryptocurrencies to help with wealth inequality, for example. 
if you look at the metaverse or virtual worlds as an escape from a failing world, I think you've already failed. You know, if, if we're all going to go abandon the real world, why would we do that? You know, we're human, we're here. It's, it's part of the deal. You know, this is, we should be using technology to enhance the experience we have while we're alive as humans, not leaving our bodies, not leaving the world behind. I personally have been thinking a lot about how do we use technology to get people reconnected with the real uh, nature. Is there a room, room for those two things to work together? Uh, I think that's one of our big challenges these days is that so many people feel that they are not part of nature. They feel completely disconnected from nature. All the more reason then to go into virtual worlds full time. But perhaps if we could reconnect to our place in the world, we might feel more committed to saving it. <laughs> you know, I, I want to dwell on what you just said, Charlie, because I think that it you just put it really well. And it's something that philosophically I've been kind of pondering a lot. I always thought of Second Life as being nature. I always thought of this idea that Second Life would be like this growing ecosystem with grass and trees and animals and stuff, and the animals would be maybe AI or something, you know, that and that you would go out into the forest in Second Life and you would really be in nature in the way that it feels to be in nature in the real world. And I think that there is an opportunity there, and I think it's, I think you put it really well that that we, we lose this ability to kind of commune with nature. And what is that? I think it's something to do about embodiment, you know, that our bodies are there and we're, we're physically part of the forest, you know, we're physically forced to interact with the animals in the forest and the trees. And, you know, our, our, there are limits set on what we can do, how fast we can walk, whether we can climb something, you know, that are, that are imposed by nature. And I think I, I have gained a new recognition here during COVID of how cool that is, you know, of how um, wonderful it is that we can't just do anything all the time. The beautiful thing about nature is that, you know, you're, you're one place in it, you're all alone, you can't do everything all at once, you don't have satellite connection, you know, you, you are there with your body and the place that you're in. And I think that there's an op maybe an opportunity to do that uh, with with future virtual worlds, you know, like what what if there was a world in which the rules were really quite strict, or what if uh, there was a virtual world where there were AI things that were evolving and kind of coming to live there and living there all on their own, and may, maybe maybe they're stronger than us. Maybe when you go hang out with the AIs, they'll they'll eat you if they don't like you, and you know maybe that could be as an avatar or whatever. That could be a wonderful thing. So I've been thinking about that. So I like that you brought that up. I think there is a place for nature. I've given this a lot of thought where I, I do think we're moving towards an age where we're expecting to have 3D experiences more and more. And, and ultimately, the reason I think we're moving there is because technology, and again, this is me as an optimist, is moving towards something that's going to be more fundamentally human that's more designed for us, for the way we normally or evolved to engage with the world. Would, would you agree with that? Do you think we're on that trajectory? I would, uh, yeah. I don't think that every web page makes sense in 3D, but as you said, I, I think the experiences that mean the most to us are the ones that were, in which we're embodied, and that requires a three-dimensional presentation. And so I think that that is the most human way that we can experience, learn, remember, you know, there's the whole memory palace thing about how 
a space remembered is is the most solid uh you know way to remember anything uh it, so i think there's a lot of merit there and that i haven't come away from it all i'm just practical as we think you know for example about these vr headsets about how do we get a full 3d presentation you know and even ar you know it's it's it, that's even just a worse problem you know because now you need lighter lighter weight things you can often see through you know and so it's it's tricky if anybody's going to figure out how to do that and be sort of ahead of the curve, I'm afraid it might have to be you, Philip. You, you've just constantly been that person pushing the boundaries ahead of where everyone else is. Uh, do you? Do you? Are you working on anything like that? Are we? Can we follow you down this path? You know, I'm trying. This moment of COVID and and looking back on technology and seeing these problems and then seeing the unrest and the instability we have as an economy and as a society. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of looking at that all right now and trying to say, and maybe this is a generative moment, you know, I'm, you know, I'm I just turned 53, you know, so it's probably right at that moment where you kind of take stock. And I, right now I'm just thinking, you know, how can I apply all the things I've learned about virtual worlds and, and and indirectly about people and about embodiment and about communication to making it a better world. And I, I do I do like to continue to work on things that are pretty early or are maybe technically difficult. You know, that I think that's probably the place where I can add value. You know, I've I've enjoyed doing those things in the past and I, I think I can do them again. I'm an optimist, but uh yeah, we'll have to see. But 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 I do think this is another point, right? And I'm sure you've had this thought too. The world is becoming less and less predictable because as expected, we're sort of stacking exponential technology changes on top of each other. And so the uncertainty, for me at least, as a kind of a futurist, the uncertainty of the present moment is profound and sometimes debilitating and depressing. Like, I feel like it is really difficult to say what's going to happen next right now. Like if you had said to me in 2000 or 1996 when I was working at Real Networks or 2003 when we were launching Second Life, if, you're going to, if you asked me to tell you what the world was going to look like in the next couple of years, I think I could do a better job then by a good bit than I can do right now. So right now I'm kind of almost, almost shocked by the present moment into a state of trying to listen more and sit back a little bit and think carefully. <laughs> Try to get my head around what's going to happen next and then and then act, you know, in as, as best way as I can. Well, Philip, I want to thank you for spending the time with me today. I really enjoy our conversations and just have always been a huge fan of not just the creativity, but the deep thinking that goes into everything that you make. So thank you and look forward to many more adventures together in the real life, in the real world, <laughs> in this life. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you. My sincere thanks to Philip Rosedale for joining me on the show today. You can learn more about Philip and High Fidelity and find a full transcript of our conversation by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to give us a review. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter that's informative and well worth the read. It's free, so check it out along with a wealth of other great content by visiting our website at fost.org. The FOSS Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. 
I hope we'll see you again in a couple of weeks for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. <laughs>